0: I live in hope that we'll see a world where there'll be plenty, where there'll be peace, where everyone will have everything they need, but most of all to be a world where your beginnings don't define where you end up.
1: Welcome to Courageous Conversations, a podcast exploring the intimate side of activism. I'm Gillian Riley. And I'm Jen Warren, and through these interviews, we seek to understand what it really takes to show up and make change during this critical time in history. In an effort to become more effective change makers, Yes. Ultimately, our aim is to promote authentic
2: engagement as a vital component of social justice and social change. Zamo Zondo is the Director of Litigation at SERI, the Socioeconomic Rights Institute of South Africa. non-profit human rights organization that works with communities, social movements, and others to challenge inequality and realize socioeconomic rights. Nomzamo holds an LLB degree from the University of the Witwatersrand and joins CERI because of the opportunity to work with exploited communities whilst using the law to balance the scales of social justice. In this sobering and moving conversation, Nomzamo offers a clear-eyed take on the state of South Africa today offering global insights on injustice and inequality and the importance of living thoughtfully with intention and empathy. Hers is a deeply human take, one that weaves together her experiences as a daughter, mother, pastor, and lawyer. Amidst the disappointments of surviving a system that rejects people on a daily basis, Numzama finds hope, hope that we will one day be able to see and hear each other for the full breadth of our humanity
0: within the workspace. One of the concerns that I've always had has been this idea that because of my education, because of who I am, I'm always seen first. The moment that I step in, people just sort of put up the podium and say, there's the human rights lawyer, she's now here. And that's concerned me because part of what I've always wanted to do and part of what I hope that I was fighting against was this idea that other people are not seen. I had this realization an epiphany a month ago of how actually as a child, that was sort of my complaint, that people never saw the full Person, You know, they saw me as you know, the bright student, they saw you know, me as the nice child, but they could never see me as the complete individual. And unfortunately, I sort of feel like I've still walked into roles where everybody wants their peace at, at different times. Mm. And nobody ever wants to see that this is who they are dealing with. And when I'm at work, it's difficult to see that I'm a pastor, I'm a mother, I'm a partner. It's like, right now, this is what is required of you. When I get home, they're like, switch off, die off litigation. Press play, mommy. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's that difficulty. I'm grateful for this, this moment of just to be me and not try to press play in any of these parts or go into any of these boxes, just to be this one complete human being.
2: Yeah. It's not a unique issue for women and trying to kind of be a mother, a partner, a leader. I find it challenging to, as you say, bring those together. But when I do and when I find a way to create those linkages, it's like new spaces almost open up.
0: That's definitely true. I remember coming into Seri when I started five years ago. I first thought that I wouldn't fit in, but as the years went by, I realized that actually because I'm all these different people, when I bring them together, I'm able, in fact, when we were participating in the Maragana Commission, no one there knew I was a lawyer. I said, no, she's a social worker because the mummy came out and I wanted to know and I wanted to reassure. And that helped because it meant that as a lawyer, I was able to show my clients that firstly they matter which was a big thing for them going to that commission. But also it showed me why I wanted to be here, why I did this work. I do want to be a reflector. I want to be there, but actually point you to say, you must actually see that person. Mm. Don't worry about seeing me. You must see that person there and the struggle they're fighting.
2: I'm curious about the fact that you feel like you're too seen because a lot of black women feel exactly the opposite. It's a wonderful reversal to hear you saying, Actually, I'm trying to reflect attention on to everybody
0: else. Look, I think it's true that there is sort of a hierarchy, right? If I walk in with a white male counterpart, we will see them before me. But the reality is that always, the moment that they know what they're dealing with, then they want to say, as the lawyer, you will understand this. Explain to your clients. There's always this assumption that, look, these people know nothing. And because you are here, you know everything. You must solve this problem. So there's always the understanding that you are the person making the decisions. And we're like saying, no, no, no. That's not why I'm here. I'm here because of these people's interests, and I'm here to represent their interests. And in fact, I'm quite happy for them to represent themselves, except when they say, Nomzamo, please step in now. I feel like I'm trying to fight those very suppositions, right? that because people live in a shack, they can't know government policy. They can't actually tell us what's the best way to rearrange this community. They are the ones who know better.
2: So tell us about that relationship because I do think most people assume what you're describing. You're the brain, you're the voice, you represent these voiceless, powerless victims. Do you empower them? Do you mindfully set out to create a platform for them to speak on their own behalf?
0: I realize now that I'm about to answer. That it's more about as I recognize the fact that they must be seen and that they're the best advocates for their case. Mm. So that's my starting point. I don't feel qualified to actually confirm or speak on whether or not I empower them because they're the ones who know that. Sometimes I say I'm maybe one of two things. Sometimes I'm a tool. Sometimes I'm a security guard.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> I'm just the screwdriver that makes sure that that screw goes onto the wall and that picture can hang. Or I'm the security guard to make sure that the door is open so that the decision maker sees that this waste picker is making a living. And all I'm doing is just I'm the mirror that says, you must listen to this person. (laughs) It opens up a space for that conversation to happen Mm. between these two people who probably had a relationship long before I was born. But the fact that there was never that lawyer there meant they could never hear each other. They're not voiceless. They're not powerless. It's a matter of their voice is not heard. And all I'm trying to do is just be like, actually, listen to this. And do they listen? 50% of the time, uh, 50% no. And so there are times when you go into a negotiation and they were just like, we will not hear you. Doesn't matter what you say, how you say it. Doesn't matter how many court applications you bring, we will not hear you. But every once in a while, you are surprised by how, even if you went through that process of not being heard, there's a point in time where people say, we know what happened but we didn't listen to them. Can we listen to them now and see if we can find each other? Mm. So you're able to get something. It might not be everything, but you get something.
2: The issue of voice is so critical right now. Perhaps there's a power imbalance, there's exploitation, there's injustice that's occurred. What does it take to create some sort of connection there to turn that relationship in a different direction? That it could possibly go from adversarial, exploitative to something more even, something more balanced?
0: I think the first thing is how you start. So, if someone's exploiting you, you're not gonna come in with an open heart. You already see them as the aggressor, already see them as the problem. And when you start from a position of, I know where you are coming from, and I see where you are coming from, and attempt to see things from where they stand, that at times has sort of brought that kind of environment where you can say, look, we understand that you're dealing with a housing crisis. We understand that you feel there's too many demands on you. You don't have the budget, but this is what we can bring for you. And then come and say, look, but this is also what we need. Can you understand that? I'm a very emotional person. So sometimes I know in the beginning, I would go into meetings and I would black out from anger. And I learned that actually you can't do that. You must actually come in and assume the best, even if it's not gonna be the role. But every now and again, you'll be able to reach someone and then things change from there.
2: Talk more about the anger, because sure, if I were in those rooms and I was doing the work you do, it would be very alive in me. Is it a necessary emotion to drive you to do what you're trying to do? And how do you balance that with the open heart that you're trying to maintain to allow you to kind of find areas for breakthroughs?
0: I think it's fuel for one's own commitment. It might help, but I've learned that you do need to build relationships. Mm -hmm. And if you're in this kind of work, especially for someone like me, who you're coming up against the same people, so if you're always the angry person, it tends to destroy even what you're trying to work towards. Right. And there is a need to then try and balance it out so that people can actually see you in a different way. And if we get caught up in the anger, I think it can be destructive. And also it can cause you to burn out. Because also at the end of the day, what happens is I'm angry at the office, I must go home. What do I go home with? It's something that you can lose a lot out of. But I think also at the same time, there are times when it can allow you to pull the best out of yourself. And I think for the first two years, three years of me doing this work, it's what I was doing. And I was angry most of the time. I'm glad that now I've moved away from that because I've been able to see the nuances and see that sometimes people are not out to get you. People just see things from where they stand. And sometimes you can find them, but other times maybe they're just as angry as you are and then you just can't find each other ever. Yeah,
2: you're talking about a kind of radical empathy, which is something we talked about in our last season. Yeah, that ability, you talk about seeing each other. It's a challenging thing for a lot of people to try and occupy the space of the other, to get inside their shoes and to understand and their fear or their sadness and I personally think some of the worst excesses are driven by just fear of losing control but I mean can you imagine that spirit of radical empathy taking hold you know the gulf between me and you and male and female and immigrants and residents and white and black might feel like it's impossible to go do you have thoughts around taking that spirit that you have and applying it
0: yeah I do feel we need more of that. Because I don't think we can actually live in a world where I'm just like, I don't care about you. We're never going to find each other. You're never going to understand my point of view. I think it is important in order for all of us to succeed, that we are able, at the very least, to have a common understanding. I've never thought about it in the way that you've put it, you know, as, as radical empathy. In fact, when I started out, I knew I want to be a lawyer because I said, look, I know how inaccessible lawyers, and I know the kind of people who access it, like people with money, And I knew that I wanted to be in a space where those who didn't have money could access it, to change their own world, could access it, to try and survive a system that rejects them on a daily basis. It is an issue about how the personal goes with everything else. Because I think the empathy is coming from the personal, but the reason I find myself here came from the political. And maybe where the two meet is this idea that at the very least, you must be able to see where that other person is coming from especially if that person is being marginalized, especially if that person's voice is being ignored. Their needs are not being met. So
2: tell me more about the childhood that led to that incredible sense of purpose at a young age.
0: So my father was a communist. He was a trade unionist in the food industry there. So I had been very close to him, but he died in my early teens. And I was like, you know, Dad, you know, when they speak about this communism, I don't understand. How could you support it? And when he dies, I wished that I would have spent more time with him, that we had found each other then. But I became very close to his comrades, and I did not want to have any of my energy invested in the capitalist system. I wanted to be on the other side fighting. So as I left high school, that's what I wanted to do. In fact, I said I want to be a political scientist, or I want to be a lawyer, and then law won.
2: And it sounds like you were always an exceptional child. You talked about people looking at you. Did you feel that you stood out in some way or another? or you? Had- yeah,
0: I felt that I stood out. But then also when I went into high school, I actually was a loner and I was on the outside. So I think a lot of that time allowed me to think about what I wanted to see in the world. And maybe that's where even the seeing thing comes from. You're always on the fringe and you're not seen. And that's why I could empathize with that. I didn't feel exceptional, right? I did feel that people would notice me, but I felt it was like a normal child who probably had more responsibility than they should have had.
2: Can you go back to that time, what your father's vision and what your emerging vision for South
0: Africa was? It was definitely to end exploitation. It was about a life where not everything was about work, where there was enough for everyone but also there was a space for people to grow into full human beings. And this whole idea that you would invest 12 hours in your day to make money, and then when you come back to your family, there'll be little time left, there'll be little of you left. And in doing this work now, it's harder because you see so much lack. I think as a child talking to my father, I didn't properly understand his vision because all I saw is there was food on the table. I saw a little bit of him. But now going to the work that I do, Seeing how people can live on next to nothing and just move on from day to day made me understand that sometimes heroes are not the people that you see out there. There's people who are heroes on a daily basis who are just fighting to survive, fighting for their families to survive. So if I had my magic wand, I would paint a world where there was enough, where people could invest their energies to make sure that we all survive, but that they could do that in a way that furthered the human race instead of just working towards greed. It's those disparities that really trouble me. I really wish that I could live in a world where we knew there was no hunger. We knew that people would not be disadvantaged by who they are, where they came from. That just simply they would be born into a world that would accept them and that they would just simply be able to strive for their best.
2: So would you describe yourself as a communist?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think so. I think so.
2: Listening to you and imagining your father, I feel sad that that word has lost its revolutionary power that it had And now it's gone. And now it's gone. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing to take its place. We don't have another vision for what we have right now, which is an exploitative capitalist system built on cheap labor. It's hard when there isn't that organizing vision of something else
0: to keep. Keep the hope. Yes. And keep fighting. Yes. It is hard. And in fact, the struggle also sometimes becomes how do you survive right now and fight for that future?
2: Yeah. So help locate us in where South Africa was. You graduated from high school in... uh, 2001. So at that point, as you looked out at South Africa, did you believe then that your work as a lawyer would have a transformative power, that you could create that society? Were you feeling
0: hopeful that
2: South Africa would fulfill its
0: ambition? In 2001, I definitely did. At the time, I mean, as a country, we're just seven years from democracy. So it felt like we were going to do this. We were going to walk through our rainbow into the promised land. And it was then that idea that if only we worked together more, we could actually accomplish that. Because maybe now I do feel a bit jaded about people's intentions. Then I believed that everyone was working towards a common goal and everyone was fighting for the next person.
2: For you, the daughter of an activist who believed that you were entering into the rainbow, as you described it, of sort of new opportunities that suddenly you'd inherited a rainbow and you'd inherited a fight, that it wasn't over, Mm. did you feel okay, let's go. You know, I'm going to take the mantle from my father. Or was it, do I actually have to fight as well?
0: Because he'd fought in some ways so that you wouldn't have to. I actually don't know the answer to that. <laughs> mm. That is the part that is hard, because you do want to feel like the fight must end. Yeah. Not only that, you do want to feel that these are the gains of the fight. Because what's the point of fighting if we end up in the same place? And I think there have been those moments of frustration, where you come out and say, but then what did we fight for? But the opposite of that has been seeing some of the changes. I think in as much as we complain about having a corrupt government, the fact that there was some sort of accountability, that there was space to challenge power, that for me means that something was won in the last fight, and this fight is about the next stage. There are a lot of gains that have been made, and now it's about keeping them, but also continuing the march towards the vision. So I accept that maybe in 30 years' time, even in 10 years' time, my children will be fighting.
2: There will always be a fight. Humans will always abuse each other. Men will always abuse women. People in power
0: will always exploit those who don't have it. I would hope that the fight would end at some point. Yeah, Personally. me too. But I do agree that it would be too optimistic to think that we can end poverty, end hunger, and mm. homelessness. But I think the whole point is to do as much as possible to make sure that it's reduced. To make sure that there are means where people can access homes. It's just that you always hope that there must be an end.
2: Yeah. I mean, you're talking about the state, you're talking about institutions, you're talking about the responsibility to its citizens, right? Do you think that something could have or should have been done differently post-1994, the state of affairs with regard to the state and its responsibility to its citizens?
0: I definitely think that the state, firstly, was worried about control. So even now, there's sort of this continued attempt to always have control of what is going on. So if you look at the apartheid state, it always tried to make sure that it looked after the white population, even the white middle class. And I think the state in the 90s, in the beginning, it wanted to make sure that it looks after the majority, but it wanted to do it in a way that was controlled. It then became clear, if you just simply copy and paste, people are going to get left behind. Right. And I think that's what happened. Yeah. I think, for instance, when you talk about land, the attempts to address land reform were always about doing it in a way that is controlled. Maybe if we had tried at that time to find new ways of rolling out land to people, we would not be in a situation that we're in today when we refer to land. Right. If at that time we're not allowed ourselves to fall into a trap of allowing education to be privatized at any level. We wouldn't be where we are today. And the fact that now, even the kids who are in the better government schools are still worse off than those with money because we've allowed ourselves to be in such a system. We've allowed that disparity to continue. Mm -hmm. And now, 20 years later, our eyes are open wide to the fact that we are set to fail. And the population is also demanding to say, we want to see the change you promised to us you can no longer keep telling us that it's coming. You can't.
2: So is your work doing some of the undoing that should have been done 20 years ago, or is that too optimistic that it's going to have that kind of broader transformative effect on the society?
0: I think first of all is we are involved in the reimagining, in the reimagining, but also then coming in with the tools that says, okay, we've known this all this time, but this is a new possibility that we could use. In the debate for land now, the biggest thing is the issue of how our government has been fixated with ownership. The reality is that people remain landless and they are not on any piece of land. They have no home. Or if they do, they are living under threat.
2: It's describing this profound displacement, a sense of being displaced in your own society.
0: It is one of the hardest things about not being home in your own home. Right. And it is a disappointment for our democracy. But part of what the community that we represent are trying to say is that if you give me land, you give me dignity. And sometimes your heart breaks because you almost feel as if you're standing by and seeing injustice. Mm -hmm. But then you also have to deal with the reality that you can only do so much.
2: And your own involvement in Marikana?
0: Where does that event sit for you within your story? It was a point in time where the lines were drawn and a government that we had put in power had chosen which side it would stand on. And it wasn't the side that all of us had assumed it would be. Even now, six years later, despite all the facts that came out, the NC still takes a position that the miners were to blame. So I think for me, it represented the worst of our government. Mm. Because you can accept and you can try and explain away some of the failings. And you can say they were always set up to fail that maybe within the capitalist government, you will struggle with redistribution. But the moment when they use their power as the state to fight for the most powerful in the conversation, that was the end. It was the end. The end of? Any hope that we're working towards the same vision. Any hope. As I said, it was simply a matter of we stand with the powerful, we do not stand with you. And if you challenge the powerful, we will deal with you. You might have voted us in, you might have chewed in long chews and put X's on a piece of paper, but you do not control us Mm. and you do not matter to us. No one at any point acknowledged the injustice that they have suffered.
2: So what in the world do you draw from as a nurturer, a pastor in that situation, in the face of absolute brazen injustice and abuse? You know, what do you say to those families?
0: So I think when the commission ended and then we got the report, the disappointment of... Coming through a two-year process and not feeling justice kind of felt like God must do something, you know? Mm. There must be justice at some point, and I think there's just that hope that there will be justice. It might not be now, but there will be justice in the future. Moving as slowly as it is will come.
2: Do you rely a lot on your faith to guide you through these, or some justice that might sit in places that we don't know anything about?
0: I do. I rely on my faith a lot, but I also put in a lot of my time and then hope. What it helps with is in those moments of hopelessness, where if you look at all the facts, the answer will be zero. My faith in it comes to at a point where it just gives me one. It is that in the near future, something will happen.
2: When you talk about reimagining, can you imagine, like your father did, something very different to replace the systems that exist right now?
0: Maybe I feel like I live too much in the now Mm. to see that. But I think in my hopes and in my dreams, I see it. I see that we can live in a totally different system where money will not decide everything, when the power is evenly distributed so that all of our voices count. But I think we spend so much of our time in the now trying to get what is here right.
2: Yeah, I guess there isn't an alternative really. I mean, your work is all about now in trying to kind of right the wrongs and navigate the decisions now. It's hard to balance that out with creating an alternative which sometimes doesn't feel like it could come from the ashes of what's here now, that you'd almost have to start with some different set of actors and some different set of tools.
0: So it's impossible for the actors who have interests in continuing now to build a new tomorrow, unless if it gets to a point where everything is on fire. Right. I hope that we don't have to get to that point. I think we have to assume that for now, the people who are getting the worst of this deal need to rise up and march us into tomorrow.
2: And will you be there
0: leading them? (laughs) I'll be in the crowd. (laughs) You don't see yourself at the front? I don't see myself at the front. I think that I'm also compromised by where I'm coming from. Because at the end of the day, my experience of now is sometimes seeing how other people experience it. But I'm living a much better version of now than most of the people in this country.
2: Right. I was going to ask you about that, because I'm thinking about you parenting your children, the beautiful story you tell of you and your father and how much he shaped you and your vision of what's possible and your sense of purpose. Are you doing that intentionally with your children today when it's so much more hard to present to them a clear manifesto, if you will, for something better? I mean, for them to say yes.
0: I'm with you i see where you're going mom so i've got four kids the most mindful one is a boy and he's the person who always be telling me about this injustice and that injustice mm. and they do have those questions of you know we need to live in a world when this cannot happen and at least i see in their own eyes how they almost take it for granted that everyone must have their basic needs met without question of who they are where their parents are
2: and i imagine them watching you they must simply by being your children, have an awareness of the realities of the world, and what a gift, as your father was a gift to you, you know, what a gift to have a mother who is living her life so deliberately and so thoughtfully. I hope it inspires them. You're not conforming to anybody's stereotype. Have you ever felt the weight of expectation around what you should or
0: shouldn't do as a woman? It's very hard. When I have encountered it, I've been sort of very clear of how do I use it to my advantage? And it's a bit hard because then over time, you do get labeled as the unreasonable woman. But almost at every first engagement, you being a woman sometimes counts in your favor because there's an assumed weakness <laughs> that you can capitalize on. That You're very wily, hey? <laughs> You have an
2: extraordinary ability. It's almost like this 360 degree view of every situation and how to play it and manage it and understand it. Seeing others and seeing a situation through others means that you can not only empathize with people, but also... Get
0: results, yeah. Yes. I mean, that's quite extraordinary. You must always act in the environment that you're in. Not in the environment that you wish you were in, mm. unfortunately. Sometimes I'm, I'm like, but why do you have to go through this every time? I'm just like, look, this is where I am now. And the most important is how to get out of it. That's quite something.
2: As you look forward at this moment in South Africa right now, in the world, so many institutions feel like they're under threat or in flux. You know, on the one hand, it seems like hopeless and spinning out of control. On the other hand, wow, maybe within
0: that is room for a fairly radical rethink. That's the one thing about any extreme that comes before the dawn. Sometimes, actually, it's only in those most extreme environments that we can actually mobilize for real change. You know, we've had here in South Africa, the big social movements came from huge depression, moments of darkness. As we sit now, we've had Marikana in 2012, it became a precursor for Fees Must Fall. And somehow going into 2017, we kind of hoped that that would grow and would be discussing a new dawn. But it hasn't happened yet. But I mean, I live in hope, maybe it's because I have faith, but I live in hope. And then on other days also, I actually see that our reality is not as dark as sometimes it can be. If I can just step back and see how far we have come. Yeah. I mean, as we sit now as a country, we're in the middle of a huge debate about the expropriation of land without compensation. Mm -hmm. The fact that we're having the debate, regardless of whether or not it will result in expropriation without compensation, whether or not it will result in the redistribution of land, is a huge victory. So there's still hope. And then the one thing at Seri that I'm known for is clutching victory at the hands of defeat. (laughs) I'm that person who will fight a fight to the point where there is success. So I never lose hope.
2: It mean, it's such an amazing combination of eternal optimism and total strategic plan or a, a chessboard in front of them saying, I can only move these pieces. For now. For now. For now. For now. Yes, <laughs> 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 for now. Yes. For now. Maybe yeah. I'll have different pieces tomorrow.
0: I'm also just grateful. I sort of feel like I'm living my dream. How many of us can say when I was 15, this is what I wanted to do and I'm doing it?
2: Yeah. You're amazing. Thank you so much. To walk into these spaces that from many points of view look hopeless and to continue to draw hope and inspiration from them I think is so inspiring. As you say, it's not as bad as we might think it is. There are people like you out there stepping into the mix, trying to bring an incredible wisdom and a deep-rooted history to this. I feel at once deeply
1: depressed and so very uplifted by this conversation. Nomzamo describes a dream deferred. She offers a damning verdict on South Africa's rainbow nation. And at the same time, she offers her hopes that there's still a new tomorrow for us all. Her description of the ANC, South Africa's leading political party, as standing with
2: the powerful and you don't matter to us, is a devastating reflection of a movement that was
1: born of such righteous intent. And Nomzamo imagines a country, a world, where people can be whole, where they can be their best and give their best. She highlights that we're not there yet in South Africa or in the U.S. or many other places. And the fact is that the system is not providing the space for people to be whole. And yet, Nomzama herself is almost a poster child for radical empathy. For her, it's not about waiting for the system to change, it's about how she interacts with others and shows up on a daily basis. Her desire for people to be seen and heard is equaled by her willingness to see and to hear those around her with an open heart an open heart. It sounds so simple, and yet today, it's truly a radical gesture. And she again brings us back to this role of the individual in creating a society that we desire, one that serves all of its people. Nomzamo says heroes are not out there. Heroes
2: are everyday people. So we have a choice. We can point to what's wrong and focus on our anger, or we can find the hero within, and each start acting in ways that make it right. Courageous Conversations is supported
1: by the Ford Foundation and produced by Jen Warren with music courtesy of Benjamin Verdery. Follow us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Search for Courageous Conversations.
2: You can also visit julianreillycom slash podcasts for more information
1: or to listen online. And we have a new website. Visit soundpage.fm slash courageousconversations. Thanks for listening.